into your Bibles to chapter 35 of Genesis. You'll need your Bible open because I couldn't fit it all on the insert as usual in these chapters in Genesis. We are in the midst of the life of Jacob. This is where we have found ourselves for some chapters now. You remember when Jacob was forced to flee from the wrath of his brother Esau because he had swindled his brother not just once but twice, humiliated his brother. Uh, maybe he won the birthright and the blessing, but he had to escape uh, within an inch of his life. As he was leaving to find some place of exile, God met Jacob. To that point, Jacob was just a worldly individual. Yes, he was the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, but Jacob was a man of the world. But when God met him at Bethel, everything changed for Jacob. Now, I don't mean that all his actions followed suit. We have seen that. But his heart was changed, and so it takes time, but it starts to work in his values and in his practices, his outlook. Everything about his life was now at least informed by knowledge of the true and living God who had made covenant with him. But yet he struggled so mightily along the way. But at that time, when he first met God at Bethel, he made a vow to the Lord. He said, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. He had to leave, but if God would bring him back to that place, to Bethel, then the Lord shall be my God. Well, the Lord kept every one of his promises that he ever made to Jacob. God preserved Jacob for 20 years at Padam Aram under Laban, prospered him over and above what he could have ever asked for or imagined. God delivered Jacob out of Laban's hand after that time. Then he delivered him out of Esau's hands. It was only left now for Jacob after those 20 years to go back to Bethel to fulfill his vow and do what he said and follow what the Lord had told him to do, to go back to his father's house. But Jacob lost focus. Do we not all appreciate losing spiritual focus? We know what the Lord's called us to. He saved us by his grace. He's placed us in relationship to Christ. He tells us to walk this way. And we get off focus. We take to something in the world, it distracts us, and we forget about our God. This is what happens to Jacob on his way back to Bethel. He's almost there. He's 20 miles short, but he sees this place called Shechem, and it looks really good. Looks like there's a lot of opportunities for him business-wise. Looks like there's some space. There's already a marketplace. Uh, there, this would, it's in a nice location. Lots of trade coming through. Let's just stop here, Jacob thinks. For 10 years, Jacob and family were under the shaping influence of a place that did not acknowledge the true and living God. Jacob and his family paid a great price for this disobedience. We studied that brutal chapter, chapter 34, last week. The violation of Dinah, the terrible negative impact of this place on Jacob's children, his sons especially. His sons were from Shechem after it was all said and done. The desecration of the sign of circumcision used for murderous purposes. And then the massacre itself of the Shechemites by Jacob's sons. So much for being a blessing to the nations. This is a spiritual low for Jacob. It's got to be. Even in Jacob's ups and downs, this had to be the lowest of the downs. Now we come to chapter 35. Here as I read God's holy word. God said to Jacob, Arise. Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that it may that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had in the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror, fell, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they, re- they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Hamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on that on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, please open the eyes of our hearts that we might learn from your word this day. Please give us understanding by your Holy Spirit and wills that are intent on living according to what we learn. 
O Lord, give us humility to accept correction and eagerness to be renewed by your grace this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, by way of disclaimer, this passage, this sermon is only applicable to those who are spiritual failures here. Only those who are moral spiritual failures. Everyone else need not listen for the next 35 to 40 minutes. Do you ever feel like you're wandering from the Lord? You know Christ. You trust in Him. You know His finished work is the only way you could be right with God. You believe that. But yet you find yourself being tugged in all sorts of directions. There's things that are constantly coming at you that want your devotion. They want to have you. They seem okay up front, and maybe they're not, there's nothing immoral about them in and of themselves, but they become too big, and you start to wander away from the Lord. Have you ever suffered a spiritual decline in your walk with the Lord, or a fall, and you feel like God is far from you at this moment? Robert Robinson came to Christ under the evangelistic ministry of George Whitfield in the middle of the 1800s. A song that he wrote, one of the only songs he wrote that we know, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, really captures the sense that every believer has. I remember when I first sang this, when I was just a new believer, and then over the years it strikes me every time, the guy who wrote this knows what it's like. In this two lines, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We're going to sing, we're going to confess to the Lord in a song, Lord, I feel like wandering. I'm singing to you right now, yet I feel like wandering. Prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to that. Not unbelievers, believers are prone to this. Jacob was born the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. He experienced the gracious hand of God time and time again. He even met God by person twice in his life. But we find him at the end of chapter 34, just before the passage I read, at an extreme low point. I know inevitably, whenever you talk about spiritual failure. Someone's sitting here thinking, nobody has failed like I have. I promise you, you have not failed like Jacob failed. Today, celebrated as Father's Day in our country, we meet Jacob at his lowest point, especially as a father. Chapter 34, in my view, as a father, finds some of the saddest words that a father could say to his sons. After raising them, they're up in their 20s, some closer to 30, the key years of their life, They lived in a place that Jacob should have never taken them. And now Jacob has to live with this regret, but on top of that, his sons commit a carefully premeditated mass murder. And Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. How tragic. Can you feel a father's regret here? The Canaanites and the Perizzites, Jacob says, my numbers are few, And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both me and my house. That's the total of his parenting. In a nutshell, he realized that's the, and that should have been the case. Naturally speaking, it would make right sense for the people around to say, this guy's sons murdered the Shechemites. We've got to rise up and kill them now. He was completely right to think this was what was coming. What a catastrophic failure that he admits with those words. Total spiritual breakdown. Done with Jacob. Ten strikes and you're out. And it's been at least ten. So what would the God of Israel say to Jacob at this moment? Far from the blessing that Jacob was supposed to be to the nations. A scourge. 
He stunk before the nations. God should have said, Jacob, you've transgressed my covenant for the last time. Be gone from me. Jacob, you have mocked my grace over and over and over, away from my presence. That's what God should have said. Jacob, you have failed to heed my word. Depart and reap the whirlwind of chaos and anxiousness and worry that you have sown. Jacob, you have raised a brood of murderers. You're not worthy of my favor. That's what God should have said, right? Thank God he doesn't think like me or like us. The God of grace gives this word to Jacob. The first words he speaks to Jacob. God said to Jacob, get up. Go to Bethel. Dwell there. Make an altar. Make it to me, the God who appeared to you when you first were at Bethel, when you were fleeing your brother Esau. Make an altar there. Recommit yourself. Come back to me. Go back to where you lost it. Go back to where you knew me best. Shake off the dust of what's just happened and get up and get out of your state and bring your family there. Jacob here models recovering from failure in spiritual leadership for sure. But really the better way to say it, God demonstrates how he restores backslidden sinners. Any backsliders in the house? This is for us, what we have here. God demonstrating this restoration. Do your thoughts of spiritual failure come to your mind often? Maybe you came into this place as some kind of penance. Like if I go to church, it'll make up for the bad stuff I did during the week. Is there some wreckage of your own making behind you? Any backsliders? This episode that we read, it's not new to Scripture. We see it repeated over and over again, and we've seen it repeated over and over again through the centuries. You've seen it in your own life if you think about it. It shows how God recovers people who have fallen spiritually. He calls once again to us with his gracious voice to come. He invites us back to him. He doesn't heap on us all the things we've done. If we come repentant, he's saying to us, come. Come back to where you lost it. And our response should be what we see happen here. And it's a response that's it's prompted because of what God does and initiates. It isn't Jacob first. Jacob's got his head down at the end of chapter 34. Rightfully so. But the response to the call of God, the gracious invitation of God to come back, is, should be rededication. To rededicate oneself to God. And then God responds with this by renewing us with his grace in his favor. Let's look at this calling of God, this gracious act of God. The lowest place that Jacob could find himself in the words of verse 1, arise, Jacob, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar. Imagine his head's down and he hears God speak to him this way. He doesn't want to lift his head because he deserves whatever judgment God pours upon him. And God says, arise. Go to Bethel like I told you to go. Go back where I told you the blessing would be. He calls to failed sinners all the time. He doesn't start by heaping on you all the guilt and shame you already have. You know it. He knows you know it. If you're in Christ and you know it, and you come to him open-handed, God says, all right, get up. Get up from your place of shame. And go. Come to me. That's what he's saying to Jacob. Come to me. You know, this is not unusual. Even in the Old Testament, there are a couple other occasions where 
Israel is at a, a terribly low spot because of their sin in adultery, spiritual adultery, and idolatry. The prophet Isaiah says to the Israelites in this state, shake yourself from the dust and arise. You're down in the dust mourning. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive of the daughter of Zion. Get up. Don't wallow there any longer. Don't keep living in that sin that's already behind you. It doesn't mean there won't be ramifications, effects. That's to deal with. But first know that God calls you. Lift up and come. In fact, Micah says something similar in his prophetic ministry. Micah 2.10. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Get out of Shechem, Jacob. That was the problem. Come back to Bethel. Come to me. Go back to where you met me. Go back to that place of simple faith. Regain your focus for a moment and think back to when you believed in God the most. Shake off those idols and the focus that you have on them and the devotion to them and all the worry they've caused in your life and all the insecurity of all the stuff you got. Rise and come back to Bethel. Yes, life has gotten very complicated. You're bearing a lot of baggage now, but don't let that distract you from God's call to return to him. That's what he's telling you today. Whatever it is. Jacob's failure as a husband, as a father, the would-be founder of a nation, could not have been more catastrophic than what we see here. But God doesn't make it complicated. He says, get up and come to me. Pick yourself up. Stop wallowing in your dismal, depressed, downcast, shameful situation and go where you first met me. Get your eyes back on the pilgrimage that I called you to 30 years ago, Jacob. And what we see as a response is all prompted and pushed because of the grace of God shown to him. Look at starting in verse 2, this, what I'm calling a rededication. Uh, our response to the offer of God's gracious calling should be to rededicate ourselves. Now, what I don't mean by rededication is this. I used to go to a summer camp when I was in high school. And at the end of the week, after we were all pumped up emotionally and spiritually, you'd have a campfire. You'd go up to the campfire with a stick and you'd declare all the sins you wouldn't commit in the upcoming year. You would rededicate yourself. And I remember people coming up. Of course, I didn't do this, but I saw some people do this where, you know, last year I partied all the time. I cheated on this. I was doing this and, uh, and all these bad things they did. And I'm rededicating and throw the stick in the fire and everyone's pumped up. We sing a couple verses of a chorus and we feel good about ourselves. But then next year, the same person gets up with the stick and says, you know, last year I did this and I did this and I rededicated. Well, the rededication didn't go so good. That's not what I mean by rededication. That's when we pump ourselves up in a certain moment and say things that we can't. No, rededication is something that shows itself in what we do. And the main thing it shows itself in is repentance. Repentance involves several things. But I like the simplicity of what our confessional answer is regarding repentance. It takes together all the biblical data on what repentance truly is. It involves repudiation. It involves removal. Repentance is a saving grace. It's when a sinner, out of their sense of their sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, it's what we have with Jacob, with grief and hatred of sin, turns from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's what rededication looks like. It has some repudiation in it, it has some removal in it, it has some regret in it, for sure, but this is what causes it. So think about it this way. Repentance is turning from your idols unto God. Well, if you've got handfuls of idols, you don't turn to God and still hold the idols. You drop them and you turn to God. That's the picture of rededication that occurs in Jacob's life. It's gotten complicated. He's allowed all sorts of things to come into his household, 
into his own life. He's overlooked many things. His own spiritual laziness led him to be spiritually lazy about his oversight of his home to the great detriment of everyone there. It says in verse 2, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. I don't know how much he suspected to be there. They just pillaged a place and stole their stuff. But you get the idea that over these 10 years of being in Shechem, a lot was overlooked by Jacob. He didn't really see what the kid's on the phone about. Oh, at least they're quiet. They're on the phone. Or whatever it might be that he was overlooking in the household. And now he comes to a point, and God spares him of the judgment he should get. He says, arise, go to Bethel. Jacob, i got to go to be with God again. We can't bring these idols. So get rid of them, he says to the household. Put them off. Put away the foreign gods. This reminds me of Paul, when Paul says in Ephesians, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life, and it is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. He's talking to believers. So you see this is a cycle. This is not new to Jacob. It's not new to you and I. But put it off, he says. When you recognize it, don't wallow in it. Put it off. Repudiate and remove. That's what we're talking about. That's part of repentance. And this is necessary for true rededication. And look at how it unfolds then. Arise and go to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. He's saying to the family, get rid of all that stuff that is an offense to God, that your devotion has been given to. And I've shortchanged you is the confession he's making to his household. He's let this happen. Now let's get rid of this. And I'm saying to you, Jacob's saying, we're going to make a family altar, which everyone should have. I don't mean a literal altar, but a sacred space in the home, a time designated regularly where the Word of God is read and spoken about. However that looks in your household, that there's no doubt among the members of the household that the parents believe the Word of God is true and binding. And this is what Jacob says. I'm gonna, we're going to make a family altar when we get there so we don't have this happen again. Get rid of the idols and let's go to Bethel. Their response, verse 4, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had. I wonder if it was shocking to him as this stuff started coming forward. The rings that were in their ears. These aren't just mere earrings. These have to do with amulets or um, they're, they're talisman. Those are carved metal or, or jewelry or stones that have pagan symbols on them. They were, they were thought to have supernatural traits, uh, almost like voodoo dolls of sorts. And they were giving those up because they had accumulated them. Jacob then took them and buried them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. He's going to leave them in Shechem, bury them so no one else could be corrupted. He could have sold those for money, but he buries them and they move from that place. They walk away from where they were, had fallen so deeply. But what about the mass murder of his sons? You know, you can have a, a moment like this. It doesn't do away with all the problems that have come with the sin you've already committed. Rededication doesn't mean all your problems go away now. You still have your past to deal with. Every natural sense would say they better look out because they're going to get killed. It says in verse 5, though, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Safe passage for Jacob and family after what the sons of Jacob did, nothing less than a specific act of God's supernatural covenant-fulfilling protection. Jacob came to Luz, Luz, verse 6, that's Bethel. It's in the land of Canaan. 
and all the people who were with him. They got to the place finally after all these years. Remember when they left Laban? That's where he's supposed to go. But the loss of spiritual focus took him to Shechem. But now he's finally there. And he builds an altar. And he calls the place, interestingly, notice this, it's important, El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself when he fled. This is a special place. Bethel means the house of God. That's what he named it on the way out of, uh, on the way out of Canaan. He named it Bethel, the place of God. This is where I met God. This is special. But now as he comes in, it's the God of the place of God. In other words, before he was commemorating the place. Now he wants to really commemorate the God of the place. Now this is an, an interesting note because this is a sacred space that he is denoting. And I think that it's okay for us to think in terms of places in our lives. You all have special places in your upbringing. Your children remember where you might have gone to vacation three, four, five years in a row. It's a special place for your family. There is something sacred about that small s. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, we are blessed to have a beautiful building, a, a, a sacred space. Now, let's say very clearly, it doesn't matter where the people of God gather to worship. The place is made special because God, he's the God of the place. But there still is something tied to these moments in our lives, corporate worship is one of them, where we tie it to a special presence of God that we experienced when we were there. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to attend a wedding of a young man who's gone to Heritage all his years. His grandparents were members of our church, Paul and Elaine Kaus. Many of you remember them. Paul and Elaine came here, were members here. They died while they were members here. We came together for their funeral service here, worshiped the Lord looking forward to the resurrection that we know they'll be part of. And we did all that in this sanctuary. And that young man was there in the worship service. And he was there uh, seeing the godliness of his, his grandparents' heritage and such. And several years later now, he meets a woman, uh, a godly young woman. They get married, and he chose to get married here. He goes to a, a friend church of ours. And yesterday, as he was uh, taking his vows right where I'm standing, where the pulpit is, I thought how special that is, this place where he sat where his grandparents, uh, both grandparents, we had funerals for them, and he was there, and he mourned their loss because he loved them. But now he's marrying someone here in this place. And I talked to his father afterward and shared this with him, and he thought the same thing. For years, they're going to look at those wedding pictures and remember this sanctuary is the place that Joe got married and the place his grandparents went to church, where they grew in the Lord. That, that ties, there's something special about that. It's a wonderful thing now to get to this stage of my my age, where I can baptize somebody and then 20 years later I'm able to officiate their wedding. But I think from the perspective of our membership, all the special things that happen in this space, in this place. This was important for Jacob to go back to that place where he first met God. Now there's a mention here in verse 8 of something that's sad. Well, this all comes along. In fact, this is something we'll see at the last part of the passage. There is a reality check. Though he gets back to Bethel, the first thing it seems that he confronts is the death of Rebekah's nurse. This would have been someone Jacob was very familiar with. Probably looked forward to seeing her again. She was a special part of their household. And the author Moses makes mention of this special woman, Deborah. Verse 8, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. It doesn't even mention Rebekah's death. This is how important Deborah is to the household. Now we see in verse 9 down to verse 15 how this rededication occurs and at the same time now there is a renewal in grace and in worship. I want to just make mention to you, 
the worship service we follow, the order we follow, it's called covenant renewal. It essentially follows the pattern in the Old Testament that you see over and over and over again, where we are confronted with our sin. We know so. We believe in God, so we come into his presence, and we start by acknowledging his, his almighty nature. But then we're confronted with the fact that we're sinners, and we confess that sin to him. And we rededicate ourselves as we pray to him, and we say, Lord, we recognize what you've done for us, and now we need to hear your word again. We need to hear a renewal of the covenant words, the gospel, as it were. And we're renewed in that by the means of grace that God gives, and we do it on a regular basis because we need consistent renewal because we consistently forget, and we go through that process every Lord's Day. And in many ways, in your own households, if you want some advice on uh, something to look at during the week, just take the order of worship and think of this pattern as something you can walk through as a family even. Renewal and grace, that's what comes about now. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again. This is the second time as a theophany God appears. It's the last time he appears like this to the patriarchs. After this, it's in different forms. Even with Moses, it's different than this theophany. Jacob has God before him again. God says, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Now, you've been paying attention, I know, and you know this is, wait a minute, he told him this 10 years ago when he left Padam Aram. Yes, but he wasn't living like Israel, still living like Jacob. And God, not scolding him, says, Jacob, you are Israel. Your new identity is with me. So he called his name Israel. God said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God, the all-sufficient one. Remember who I am who's talking to you. Almighty, nothing, I'm limited by nothing. Now you be fruitful and multiply, A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. We have the 12 tribes of Israel represented in his sons. And kings shall come from your own body. Many kings come from him. The king of kings comes from him. In the land that I gave Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your your offspring after you. He is repeating the exact words he said to Isaac and the words he said to Abraham. And we have them inscripturated for us. We can read them ourselves and we do every, all the time. Covenant renewal. Constant reminders of God's promise of salvation. God's gospel promises. Regular reminders of God's promises because we need them. This is why we have s- such appreciation for God giving us these means of his grace so we continually have the gospel repeated. Because when this happens, this is the beauty of it, our ability to obey God is greatly enhanced. I don't mean we lose our propensity or our proneness to wander altogether, but the more we're filled with the truth of his grace, the more we're renewed by his grace and we worship him, the less likely we are to go back to the idols. The more we're taken up in his worship, the less we're groping around for the idols. This is what Robinson knew so well when he wrote, Come Thou, Fount of Every Blessing. The whole verse, O to grace, what a debtor. How, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. I know I owe you for this grace, O oh Lord. I could never pay you back. Thank you for this grace. Let that grace, he says now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. He completely gets it. Then it says in verse 13, God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. 
And Jacob set up a pillar in the place that he, where he had spoken, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering. It's a way of uh, sealing or dedicating himself. Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Yeah, he called him that already. That's because he wants to establish it afresh, start over. Now, in closing to this passage, the second half of the chapter, there's a real reality check. As I mentioned to you, and you know this to be true, God can relieve you this morning of all your sin, but doesn't change some of the stuff in the back, in, in, our, in our baggage. There's still things that occur. That's true of sin in general. It's true of our personal sins as well. Hughes says, well, chapter 35 records Jacob's turnaround in newfound obedience, but it also chronicles sinful residuals. And that's true. You see what it happens. In verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel. There's some distance from Ephrath. Rachel now goes into labor, and it's a hard labor. Verse 17 says that a midwife tried to comfort her. You're having a son, but she was still dying. Verse 18. She was dying, and in her grief, she said, I'm going to call him Ben-Oni, which is uh, my sorrow, a son of my sorrow or anguish. But Jacob intervenes and says, no, this is Ben-Hamin. This is son of my right hand. Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. You remember every Advent season we say Bethlehem Ephratah? That's Ephrath right there. Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which was there to this day, Moses is writing. There's still a place there that people commemorate. It's the place of weeping where Rachel was buried. Israel, Jacob journeyed on from there and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder, all within the region now of Bethel as he was supposed to be. The sorrow of Deborah's death first, now the sorrow of Rachel's death. More heartache, though, for Jacob's house. It's revealed by what his oldest son Reuben does. In verse 22, while Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah. Remember, Bilhah is Rachel's servant. Rachel, the favorite wife of Jacob lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, in Israel, Jacob heard of it. Jacob didn't seem to do anything. Same old passive Jacob. The sad reality is that Jacob has made a mess of his family, and though he's rededicated, there, there's an aftermath that keep, continues to play out through the rest of Genesis. Reuben, the oldest, was witness to the most of the pain and probably felt the most of his favoritism against him. He loved Joseph and Benjamin more than he loved him. He had no respect for Jacob in this way, and he shows it through adultery with Jacob's concubine. Also, it's not just a, simp- uh, a sinful fling. He was making a power play on his father's authority. It was a display of Reuben's intent to be the firstborn son who received all the firstborn inheritance. He was making a statement to Jacob about that. We see this in other places in the Old Testament as part of the culture in those days. You know, there's another reason why I believe Moses put this situation with Reuben in the Scripture by the Holy Spirit's leading. And I think it speaks to the evi- uh, more evidence of God, the Bible's trustworthiness. If you were writing a mythology to get people to believe a religion, you would not put the details that Moses puts in here. There's no myth- mythologizing the patriarchs. Whether it be Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Nimrod and the Babel situation, Noah and his family, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, The Bible tells the whole true ugly mess about everyone. That's why we really know that this is true. We're so thankful that our lives are not put on display like this because they don't sound at all like what I put on Facebook. There's There's a whole bunch of lines in there I don't want you to see. 
or when you're talking at the, at the dinner. You don't, how's your kids? Everything is great. Thankfully, we can trust the Bible's testimony. In the end, all of it, all the people in the Scriptures, except for one, leaves us longing for a righteousness that none of us can obtain. The message of the Bible isn't, you could do this, come on, you could do this. The message is person after person after person. Well, I'm going to say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are more spiritually astute than I am, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't be righteous. If these figures could not be righteous, then none of us can be. This all points to the only one who is righteous, the triune God himself and the Messiah in particular, who is the end of the story, the point of the Bible. I love what Boyce said. The name God did not appear once in chapter 34. No surprise. It appears 11 times in this chapter on its own, and then through the word Israel, El being God, Bethel, El Bethel, and El Shaddai, it repeats even more times in this chapter. There is only one hero of the Bible, the triune God, and his son Jesus Christ is the purpose of it all. Finally, we have a summary of Jacob's family at the end of the chapter where he lists the sons of Leah, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Rachel, the sons of Zilpah. These make up the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel and set the stage for the rest of the Old Testament. Sadly, at the end, we see the death of Isaac. Verse 27, Jacob came to his father, Isaac at Mamre, at Hebron, the same place where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now, 180 years, he was old now. He breathed his last, died and was gathered, uh, gathered to his people, old and full of days, in the only reunion we know of with Esau and Jacob again, they gathered to bury their father. Kent Hughes said, Jacob's life is about Almighty God who delivers his sinful people and fulfills his word amidst the residuals of sin. Jacob's life calls, unto repent, calls us to repent of our sin and obey God and direct our lives towards him. The patriarch's life assures us ultimately of the triumph of God's grace. Jacob models recovering from a failure in spiritual leadership. But better put, God demonstrates how he restores backslidden sinners. Great news for every one of us today, especially fathers. When spiritual failures come to mind, though, I think of one person that I relate with the most. I think of Peter. He walked with Jesus for three-plus years. He saw everything that Jesus did. He bowed himself to Jesus unto death. Yet when the moment came... A servant girl around a fire was all it took for him to deny Christ. Yet when Jesus came to him, what did he say? Peter, I never knew you. No. Peter, son of Barjona, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I know. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. He was, he was greatly, greatly stressed that the Lord would ask him so many times, but now he sees it. What he's doing is setting him up for what he has for him. He's not done with Peter. He loves Peter. Feed my sheep and follow me. Jesus was not finished with Jacob. He's not finished with you. Jesus is not finished with Peter. He's not finished with the rest of us spiritual failures. Jacob shows how God recovers people who have failed spiritually, which is tremendous news for all of us today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we all know spiritual failure. And Lord, for any who are in a spiritual malaise this day, I pray that you would awaken them with your gracious call this morning to arise and come back to you. 
for those who are depressed because of their spiritual failures or their spiritual weakness. I pray this fresh consideration of your offer of grace would encourage and enliven them. Lord, give us strength to rid ourselves of those idols that are holding back our devotion to you. Please help us to stop the ridiculous excuses for the things we allow in our households or allow to grip our hearts or take our devotion. Give us honesty about the things that we just must get rid of. Oh Lord, when it comes to you and your grace, we know that we could never pay you back for it all. We are such great debtors. But oh Lord, please take that grace like a fetter and bind our wandering hearts to thee. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us respond by turning in our